Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, Wednesday, June the 21st. It's the official first day of summer, unless you live in the South, in which case it's been summer for the last three months. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am very happy to be here with you today once again um, on this International Yoga Day. So if you're listening to the dulcet tones of the rundown while you're trying some uh, warrior pose, we appreciate that. Um, joining me is uh, my co-host and good friend, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Tom. I would like to also point out that there's a lot of summer-themed days going on. So it is not only uh, the first day of summer, it is also uh, World Giraffe Day, so go to the zoo, National Smoothie Day, have a delicious drink, National Peaches and Cream Day, uh, yum, National Selfie Day, I guess that's at the zoo, and National Seashell Day. I mean, what are they, I feel like they're trying to tell, is there some message here? I think the message is, is that you should go to the zoo, see if you can hear the sound of the ocean, and take a selfie with a giraffe after you listen to the hot news that we have coming up here on the rundown. Uh, we're going to kick off a story uh, from Intel uh, for not their uh, enterprise line of chips, but it's actually going to be for their consumer line because you know that Intel has an eye for branding, but they no longer have an eye in their core series chip branding. Reports this week state that Intel will now refer to these chips merely as the Core 3 Core 5, and so on, instead of the Core i3 and Core i5. Now, that branding has been in place since 2008, which uh, just happened to be shortly after the launch of the iPhone for no particular reason whatsoever. Intel is going to de-emphasize the generation of the processor in that uh, branding. It's only going to be in the processor number now, and in the slides that we see in the linked article, they are specific about de-emphasizing that. The other thing that's changing is the way that they're branding their uh, premium processor lines. Those are now going to be referred to as the ultra line of processors. You're probably asking yourself, what makes a processor an ultra premium processor? We don't know. And Intel isn't saying. Right now, we expect that it's going to be their current line of K-series unlocked clock multiplier processors, as well as whatever Meteor Lake ends up putting down the, the pike for us but we really don't know, and, and we won't know until Intel decides to tell us. Steven, is Intel just looking to streamline their branding here, or has that eye finally worn out its welcome? Well, I expect that Intel is probably also retiring the uh, translucent, uh, brightly colored packaging that the CPUs came into. Uh, no, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Now, I is so 2000s, isn't it? I mean, even Apple doesn't use the I name on things except the things they're stuck with. Have you... Have you noticed that it's still called the iPad and the iPhone? I think it's really bizarre that they didn't drop that with the iPhone 10, maybe. I don't know. Um, any, anyway, the I didn't make sense anyway, so I'm glad to see it go. Um, I think that having these names, I really like the, the 3, 5, 7, 9 naming system. Um, I think it makes some sense to people, especially people who know what BMWs are. Um, but also, I would say that um, dropping the generational names is a huge, huge step forward. It was so clunky. Let me tell you, as a tech writer, um, it was very hard to remember exactly how you're supposed to, according to Intel, name these things. It's a, um, is it a fifth generation Core i3-12345K, or is it a uh, generation 5i3? And it, and it Get rid of that. Get rid of that. Um, the, the generation's already encoded in the product model name anyway. Um, there's a rumor as well that they may be rebooting that um, instead of, uh, you know, I mean, we're up to like 14th generation now. Um, they may be restarting at one. I kind of wish they would get rid of the core name too, but I guess, you know, 
that's as good a name as any for a processor. Um, yeah, so effectively, we're going to have the Core 3, Core 5, Core 7, and then we're going to have the Core Ultra 5, 7, and 9. Uh, the numbers after the name is are still going to have uh, things, you know, clues like the generation number, the uh, model number that it's sort of sequential related to performance overall. I do think this has a lot to do with the uh, introduction of Meteor Lake, though, because Meteor Lake is going to give Intel a lot more flexibility in how it puts these chips together. And I think that we could see a much more interesting lineup of processors from the company going forward. It's been a challenge a little while now. Um, exactly what's so much better about a three versus a five versus a seven? Is it technical differences? Is it just sort of an abstract? Uh, the seven is faster and has more stuff. I think that in Meteor Lake, we may see some real differences between the core and the ultra. And I think, too, that we can extrapolate this for the Xeon family. Uh, maybe the fifth generation Xeons will have a similarly streamlined name. Uh, hopefully they get rid of the uh, generation uh, moniker at the front and, and just let us use the, the code number. Um, because everything's getting weird now that we're having these chiplet-based processors come out. And we could end up with a, a wider variety of chips that do a lot of different things. And, and it would be, help to keep them straight with some straight numbering. Tom, you never want the FCC asking questions out of nowhere. ISPs are about to learn uh, why the federal regulator has asked them to help understand why customer data plans still have data usage caps. The FCC is saying that during the pandemic back in 2020, ISPs were quick to eliminate data caps and even increase throughput in some cases for remote learning and telehealth, uh, or as in the case uh, here where I live, because a competitor appeared. Um, the, uh, after the U.S. opened back up, the data caps came back in force, and the FCC is now gathering information about the justification for data caps and uh, wondering exactly what unlimited means in these limited cases. Um, Tom, I know that most people listening just love the idea of data caps and don't want them to go away. What, what's your opinion? I feel like this is where I need to do like the dramatic chipmunk thing because the FCC has suddenly decided to whip their head around and be like, so ISPs, tell us why you have to pay more for data. Because I remember during the pandemic when uh, my local uh, cable company, that sounds kind of like a dirty word because um, I use their name in vain all the time, said, oh, well, we're going to get rid of your data cap because we know that you're stuck at home and you're doing nothing but watching Netflix and doing remote learning and stuff like that. And I'm like, cool. And then it took about a year and they're like, oh, hey, remember how we forgave that data cap? We're going to put it back in place. There's a reason why cable companies do that is because they will remove the cap if you buy some of their other services like cable. There's a reason why if you're being provided a mobile device from AT&T, Verizon, all these other companies that have other media plays, they'll give you an unlimited amount of data if you're buying one of their other services. It's because, and I don't know if you know this or not, Stephen, but it's a secret. Companies like to make money. And the easiest money that you're going to make is on data throughput. Do you know why? Because it costs literally no additional money to open that pipe a little wider. The dirty little secret of internet service providers is that they, maybe more than your grandmother, are the most thrifty frugal people on the planet. They will not 
upgrade those pipes unless they absolutely have to. This is an organization where plugging a cable to cross-connect three routers to increase the bandwidth by an extra 10 gigs is like a $10,000 job for a cable that might be a foot and a half long. It's because the the everything exists there. It's already done. Like and, and, and a network pipe does not run at half speed unless you configure it that way. It runs at full speed the whole time. Everything else is a software trick. So if there is a 100 gig pipe running between, I don't know, Cleveland, Ohio and Chicago, Illinois, that pipe's going to carry 100 gigs of traffic unless the ISP goes in and go, no, 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 no. We want to police the rate on that pipe. Why would it, why would somebody want to do that? I know, so they can charge you more to give you the full speed, and that's what the FCC is basically saying here. And and credit to Jessica Rosenworcel, who I, I'll, I'll be fair, I'm a fanboy. Um, she said the internet is critical now. Like this is not a nice to have. This is not something you know. Like remember when phones were a nice to have in your house, and now they're for a long time were a need to have, and now how many people have a home phone? They've changed over and they're using a cell phone or a mobile phone or a smartphone. Why? Because the mobile phone gives you the you know capabilities of a phone, but also the internet. Because think about all the things that you do in your life that require you to have the internet. Uh, and I'm not talking about the basic stuff like your calendar and all that other stuff, checking the weather. Do you get your job schedule from your phone? Do you answer emails for your work on your phone? Um, the, the, the internet is not a, a, an okay thing to have. I mean, I carry an unlimited data plan on my mobile device for work because I have to have it because I don't want to ever get into a situation where it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm about to hit my data cap for the day, for the month. So Steven, I can't answer any emails for the next two days. Uh, you'd fire me. And that ultimately I think is the problem is that the FCC wants to understand why these things are being imposed arbitrarily and why it's costing so much to get quote unquote unlimited data when it seems to be all they're doing is flipping a switch at the ISP. So um, to the internet service providers who are about to get hauled in front of the FCC, good luck, may the odds ever be in your favor. I don't think you're gonna give good satisfactory answers, especially because the FCC is already looking at what they can do to bust these data caps up. It was nice knowing you. All right, Stephen. Um, HPE Discover is happening this week, and uh, HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, has announced their entry into the AI cloud market, including HPE GreenLake for large language models. Um, this new offering allows enterprises to access on-demand multi-tenant supercomputing resources for privately training, tuning, and deploying large-scale AI models like the ones that power everybody's favorite search engine, ChatGPT. Given the current state of the AI market and HPE's success with GreenLake, it's not really a surprise when you think about it. And I'm sure the investors are going to love it. But Stephen, what do you think about this product? Well, it's interesting. So first off, we are not at Discover this week. Uh, I wish we had been able to attend. But um, uh, uh, watching from afar, it seems like this is the major announcement from uh, Antonio Neri and company at uh, Discover. And it's an interesting one. Uh, I was actually just talking to a, a financial analyst uh, last week at Accelerate, and um, he and I were sort of thinking about what is the real market for AI training hardware. And I think it's important right off the bat to distinguish between what's called training and inferencing. Uh, training is when you build the model. In other words, when you collect all this data, you churn through it, it takes a long time, it takes a lot of processing power. And when I say a lot, I mean an un, 
unimaginably hugely mind-boggling a lot of processing power. Inferencing is when you actually run the thing. In other words, when you ask uh, your voice assistant to do a thing, or when you ask ChatGPT to parse through a website and give you the bullet points, uh, that is, uh, requires uh, hardware, sure, but a lot less hardware. It requires data, but a lot less data. So what we're talking about here is a training system that would run in uh, GreenLake. It's based on HPE's uh, HPC leadership, which I have to say, um, HPE doesn't get enough credit for their place in HPC, but remember they've got Cray and they build a lot of these supercomputers. Uh, they're everywhere in the HPC market and they've done really, really well there. They know what they're doing. It also leverages uh, a partner, a German company called Aleph Alpha that has developed uh, their own LLM uh, that they will be deploying within this as well. And essentially, this is in in line with what I was talking to this financial analyst about last week, which is I'm not sure that there is a huge market for AI training muscle, compute power, um, you know, storage, uh, you know, GPUs, that sort of thing, in enterprise. I think there certainly is an appetite, and there's going to be an appetite for AI inferencing. But inferencing can happen. Hell, inferencing can happen on a Xeon or on an Epic, or on a uh, fairly low-end GPU. Um, and, and, and frankly, that's what's going to happen in the enterprise. I think the training, well, it makes more sense to have that run in the cloud. And that's what HPE is doing here. They're bringing together uh, the equipment, the know-how, the HPC work that they've done in the past. Uh, Third-party products, I'm sure, are very, very involved in this. And they're going to basically build out a large-scale uh, training platform that can be used on demand by enterprises if they really want to train and build their own AI model. I think that's great. I think it's a smart move from HPE. It reflects uh, the, the state of the market. And I think that frankly, the fact that they're doing this validates my contention that there's not really a big market for training hardware in the enterprise. Uh, that being said, uh, I think that it's important to recognize as well that there might not even be a big market for training in the enterprise. Because even with this announcement, we've got a pre-trained LLM that goes with it that uh, customers can use. In other words, they don't need to use this thing at all because they've got the product available that they can then deploy in, in their, uh, you know, their applications. And, and frankly, I think that that's the direction that the industry is headed, the ML uh, AI industry generally in enterprise. And, and I don't think that that's necessarily good news for the people who are predicting, you know, $150 billion of sales of a high-end uh, ML training hardware. I, I'm just not sure that that market is there. NetBrain and Pessler, two companies that you may be familiar with from our field day events, have announced their flagship products now feature much tighter integration. Pessler is the creator of the popular PRTG network monitoring tool, uh, with this new integration, PRTG can feed information about a network and any issues to NetBrain to help draw a rich, detailed map and help troubleshoot those issues. PRTG can also provide live details to keep NetBrain map continually updated and provide a heads up about potential issues. And when PRTG does find anything that needs to be fixed, NetBrain can maybe even fix it automatically. Tom, uh, what do you think about this? Are we living in the future? 
I think we are a little bit. I like the fact that they're finally starting to realize that you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you want to build something. So PRTG has been kind of the gold standard for doing some of this, you know, entry level to, you know, SME level network mapping, troubleshooting, you know, pulling configurations and files and things like that from devices. And it works really, really well. What it has struggled with in the past is that visualization aspect of it. I mean, I know they're trying, they're doing a really good job, but you know, that's not, if, if you're not, if you don't have expertise in doing that, then that's not something you're going to skill up on overnight. And so they, it can give you some ideas, but then you turn around and you get to a company like NetBrain who literally built the entire software on being able to build these relational maps and provide a dashboard with visibility for the whole network. And, and some person out there probably, you know, in the middle of a conversation, like, man, I really want the discovery features of PRTG, but I want the maps from NetBrain. If I could have those two things together, it'd be like chocolate and peanut butter, right? And someone finally said, well, then what's stopping us? Now, obviously, the, the answer is what usually stops us is, well, we want to develop that feature by ourselves and we want to make all the money off of it. But if you're not doing a really good job of providing that feature, I think that it makes sense to kind of partner up with a company to do that. And normally the way that, you know, this might come down is like, oh, hey, we're buying this company. And that's not the case here. I think ultimately what's really going on is that NetBrain is doing a good job of, of proving this integration works. And PRTG is, is really getting to leverage the, uh, the, the power of what NetBrain offers. So there's a little bit of an attach rate there, right? You know, if I buy PRTG, but I need more advanced mapping features, why don't you go ahead and buy NetBrain? Because you know we work well together. Likewise, NetBrain can say, hey, if you're looking for some more, you know, real-time data updating and things like that, why don't you use PRTG over here? The real secret sauce to me, though, is the fact that if NetBrain can do this for PRTG, what is stopping them from doing it with other tools? And I think that's ultimately where they're going to go is they're going to say, we're going to concentrate on the visualization and the mapping part of this. And if we need to farm out the data collection to other companies, we are more than happy to do that because what it ultimately will lead to is happier customers, but our developers can focus on the parts of our solution that really define who we are. You know, it would be like, I don't know, if a company like Cisco suddenly decided they wanted to get into making cars, could they do it? Yes. Would it be better if they partnered with a company that was already really good at making cars? Probably way better. So I, I applaud this move. I'm happy to see that PRTG is is still, you know, one of the, the most recognized brands in the industry uh, for Paisler and also that NetBrain is having this success. And I think that this is uh, the opening of a door that's going to really help them in the future. All right, Stephen, we had a story we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look at. It's actually a couple of stories because uh, Intel is not just in the news for their consumer chip lines. Uh, they're looking to expand their entire chip making facilities outside of the U.S. Our first story involves a huge $25 billion investment in chip making in Israel. Man, that's a big amount. Intel will pay increased taxes on this factory, but they're also going to get a bigger grant for the total investment if the conditions of the investment are met upon completion of the project. The factory is expected to open in 2027. It will operate through at least 2035. That's a good healthy lifetime at the minimum. The second big investment comes in Germany where the government has agreed to provide an additional $10 billion in subsidies for a fabrication facility in Magdeburg. Apologies for all of my German listeners out there. 
Uh, both of these announcements come on the heels of a testing facility and packaging facility that's being built in Poland. Now, Stephen, I know that Intel is looking to make these big investments because they know that they need to ramp up their fabrication facilities. But why are they trying to expand non-U.S. operations after all of the work that they did to get the CHIPS Act passed? Yeah, I think that this is a sign that Intel is playing the big ball game that they need to play. Um, let's get that out there right off the bat. Uh, so when Pat Gelsinger came back to Intel, uh, one of the things that he said, and one of the things I think that most analysts and, and, and casual observers would agree to, is that Intel really needs to get its uh, manufacturing uh, back up and up to full speed uh, in order to effectively compete in the semiconductor market. Uh, the company has honestly always done a great job in the chip design side. Um, sometimes, well, not as great a job, but still the company has made competitive products again and again and again uh, for you know decades. Uh, manufacturing as well, Intel was always in the lead until it wasn't, until the previous era when Intel's manufacturing really fell behind to the point that Intel is now outsourcing manufacturing of some components to TSMC, which has got to make those people crazy. So Intel, uh, as I argued when Pat came back, and as I've been arguing on this uh, rundown ever since, Intel needs to bet the company on manufacturing, and it needs to succeed. This is the whole ballgame, and this is what Intel is doing. Um, there's actually another thing going on, I'll point out. Today at um, 1130, uh, Intel is going to announce a uh, financial change. Um, at least that's what the analysts are saying. Uh, allegedly, and, and again, I can't confirm this, it'll probably be published by the time the rundown is published, but allegedly the uh, change will be that Intel is going to actually re reveal numbers of the uh, hardware and manufacturing side along with the chip design side. And, and again, I feel like this is a way of Pat Gelsinger lighting a fire underneath these people and saying, look, this needs to succeed or there is no Intel. There's no reason for Intel to exist if it can't be on the front leading end of manufacturing. The same thing is true of these factories. Israel, uh, Germany, the semi-fab uh, that they're building right here in Ohio, uh, the assembly and testing that you talked about in, uh, in Poland, in Wrocław, Poland, uh, that they're building as well. All of this is about Intel betting that it can get the manufacturing house in order and not just get it in order, but get it in order in a way that's ahead of the competition. And if you look at this, where is Intel building this stuff? The United States, um, you know, and we know that the US government wants locally manufactured chips and is willing to subsidize those. Uh, the European Union, specifically Germany, again, the German and the European market wants uh, homegrown chip manufacturing capability as well, and they're gonna get that from Intel. And they're willing to put their money where their mouth is after a little bit of a game of chicken over the last few weeks over will this happen or won't this happen? Yeah, it's going to happen and Germany's going to put up the money to make it happen. Israel, uh, if I was Israel and I was looking at the global situation and I looked at Taiwan and I looked at manufacturing in the U.S. and I looked at relations with um, basically every other country in the world, I would want homegrown chip manufacturing capability as well. Um, and, and that's what's going on here. In all of these cases, Intel is basically, if you pardon my stretching the metaphor, uh, building new ballparks, um, investing in new expansion teams, and hoping that they can put a winner on the field. If they can, this puts Intel ahead of TSMC 
in the chip manufacturing market because of the fact that they will have brand new fabs with the latest technology operating all over the world, especially and notably in key markets for these products as local manufacturers. If they can't put together a compelling and competitive manufacturing um, position, well, at least they've got something to sell to the creditors. And it's funny that you use that metaphor, Stephen, because it's actually one that I was going to use. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this. Well, you are, but I don't know if our listeners are aware of this. The Oakland A's are having a ballpark built in Las Vegas, Nevada. You know, 120 degree in the summer, Las Vegas, Nevada. Why on earth would you want to build a baseball park on the Strip? Because Las Vegas is paying for it. That's the ultimate thing. When you at, when you look at what Intel is doing, and it's a brilliant move by Pat Gelsinger, and hey, full disclosure, Pat, I like him, because he figured out how to get his factories built and not have to pay for all of them. Like, like that's the thing. I mean, I live in Oklahoma. We are the recipient of a basketball team where the city of Seattle didn't want to build them a new arena, so they moved. Like, that's the thing. When you're, you're operating on a global scale, it doesn't matter where your chips are. As long as there's water and as long as there is access to a port somewhere, airport, seaport, whatever, like you can build a factory just about anywhere. Now, obviously, you probably want to build it in a seismically stable location or there, there's other things going to it. But you, you don't have to only build it in Silicon Valley or you don't have to only build it in Paris. You build it wherever you want. So then what would be the, the sweetener? Well, just like a sports team, who's willing to pay? Like, I want reduced taxes, or I want a, a big grant on the back end to offset those taxes that I'm paying you. And I think that that's why the Israeli situation is so interesting to me. Intel literally agreed to pay more in taxes. You never see that. But what they're effectively saying is, we're going to inject money into the local economy through these taxes. And then at the end of it all, if we hold up on our end of the bargain and you hold up on your end of the bargain, we'll give you that plus some back in a grant that you can then use to, you know, do whatever. And, and if, if the factory is a huge success, like you said, Intel's just going to keep operating it, right? Because at that point it's a sunk cost. We've already paid off the construction and all that other stuff. If it's not a huge success, would you think that an Israeli company would want to go buy a, a very good fab that they could then, you know, operate however they see fit because it's, you know, it's sold to a, a company in Israel. I think that that's a big deal. And when you look at the fact that, you want to stay out of China right now. And we've talked about this a lot. And when you look at the stories, especially the ones around Micron and what the U.S. is doing with some of the companies, it's it's a geopolitical nightmare, right? If you put a fab in China, it has to be owned 51% by a Chinese company. There's no guarantee they're not going to um, get creative with the way they do things. And then you may end up losing the fab anyway. And let's be fair. If you're a foreign company operating in the U.S. that's not TSMC, possibility exists that could happen too. So I think that Intel is kind of hedging their bets. They're getting funding from other countries. They're diversifying outside of the US in case something happens. It shouldn't, but it might. And they're providing valuable assets to recoup that cost. The irony of this whole thing, as we've talked about in the past, is that Pat Gelsinger is a nerd. He is focused on production. Bob Swan was the finance guy. And he didn't figure this out. You would figure the finance guy would want to build these plants in places where he could sell them if he needed to recoup that investment. And he never did. Pat did and is doing that. And I think that that ultimately is the genius of the whole thing. He gets a diversified 
supply chain and he gets assets that he can effectively mortgage outside of the U.S. should it come to that. That's an interesting thing as well, Tom, that um, the just just keep this in mind that this is it. If if this works out, then Intel wins. And if this doesn't work out, then Intel doesn't win. And we can spend all the time we want talking about uh, the next generation Xeons or packaging technologies or whatever it is. If if Intel is able to get manufacturing in gear, none of it matters. Intel wins. Because that's the thing. Even, even now, even in a time when there's so much uh, intellectual property going on on the design side, um, manufacturing always trumps it when you're talking about uh, what we're talking about, which is basically ever shrinking uh, features. So uh, allegedly, Intel is going to be building the Intel 3, the 20 angstrom, the 18 angstrom um, process nodes in Germany. Uh, probably they'll be deploying that stuff in Israel and the US as well. And um, and if Intel can do this, then they will be able to keep out ahead of competitors like AMD and NVIDIA, uh, and they'll be able to attract customers, uh, lucrative customers like Apple. And if they can't, well, it doesn't matter. Well, on that rosy note, we, we wish Intel success in the future, but we wanted to tell you about some of the successful things that we have coming up because there are a couple of events that are near and dear to my heart that I definitely want to see you at. Uh, the first one is going to be next week. We're going to be holding our security field day event, uh, first one of 2023. It's going to be June 28th and 29th. You can find out more information at techfieldday.com. Uh, we have a great lineup of presenters. In fact, uh, we should be publishing a, a video about that very shortly. So stay tuned to gestaltit.com for the complete uh, workup of all of those folks. And then uh, once I take a little bit of time off to beat the heat, I'm going to be back in uh, the end of July with Networking Field Day. Um, that's right. We're doing another Networking Field Day. Our response to Networking Field Day has been overwhelming this year. So July 26th and 27th, we're going to be back in Silicon Valley. And we were talking to some great companies like Broadcom. And Nile Secure, brand new company that is very hot in the industry, and I can't wait to learn more about what they're doing. Uh, but that's not the only thing that we do here, of course. You know that there's more great content coming out on gestaltit.com on a regular basis. And Stephen, I was wondering if you could tell people about this uh, Tech Talk series that we've published a couple of videos about, because that's something that's really exciting to me. Yeah, we've uh, recently recorded some really great conversations with key people in the industry, just one-on-one -on -one conversations, short form, uh, where we ask them, essentially, tell us what you're interested in. What's the topic that's, uh, that you're focused on? And they uh, dive into it. We've got a bunch of these things recorded. Uh, we'll be posting them to our website, gestaltit.com, as well as our YouTube channel, which is YouTube slash video. And um, you'll be able to learn um, some technology insights from some of the best uh, folks in the industry. We've been recording these with companies for a while, and we decided, uh, you know what? It would be interesting to go beyond products and just talk about technologies. And that's exactly what we're doing. Um, I'm going to give you a heads up. Uh, check out the one uh, with uh, Michael Levan, where he talks about being a part of the Kubernetes release team. And um, there's another great one coming up uh, with our good friend, Max Mortolaro, talking about sustainability and greenwashing. Uh, keep an eye out for those. They're great. Yes, I would agree. It's, it's a wonderful way to kind of hear the insights of some of the, the people in the industry that you want to follow and, 
and and see what they're excited about. And uh, that's what we're excited about here at at the Rundown. Uh, we're here every Wednesday, usually around twelve thirty Eastern time, uh, unless there's some kind of breaking news that we need to jump in and re-record something. Uh, but if you want to follow us on YouTube, as Stephen mentioned, we're YouTube.com/slash Gestalt IT Video. If you want to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast application, we're the uh, Gestalt IT Rundown. Um, if you want to, you know, take go for a run and disagree with Stephen and I vehemently, we we appreciate that. Um, you know, whatever it takes. Uh, we, if there's any news stories that you think we need to cover, please tweet at Gestalt IT, use the hashtag rundown. Um, we're always looking for great stories and we'll definitely uh, give you credit on the air if, if we uh, use your story and talk about that. And, uh, we will be back next week. Well, Stephen will be back next week. I will be in the middle of security field day. So Stephen and one of our great, uh, group of, of co-hosts will be, uh, talking about all of the news. I hope nothing exciting happens because I don't, I don't want to miss out on the cool news. But we know that it's probably going to be something super exciting about networking that I can't talk about. But um, rest assured that Stephen and, and his co-host will be here to cover it. And if you want to keep up with anything that we're doing, um, the easiest way to do that is to just go on social media and look for Gestalt IT. Because we're Gestalt IT just about on any platform you can think of. We'll be there. And if you want to uh, subscribe to our website or our newsletter at gestaltit.com, uh, you can get weekly updates on all the cool stuff that we're working on, including coverage of the rundown or any stories that we've published. We'll be back next week uh, with more great news. Until then, take care of yourself, stay cool, and have a good one.